turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Can a pastor ever title his message today's sermon? Can, does, does it always have to be something unique? I wanted to call today's message the grace given to the leastest of the saints. Oh, Eric, you left it in. Good man. Good man. Okay, so that's the, cert- that's the title. Grace given to the leastest of the saints. And I know we have some teachers in the room. And they, they seem huddled. They seem sitting together um, as a band, a coalition. Um, I, I hear the protest. That's not grammatically accurate. Uh, it's not, but you'll see. You'll what? Please, please don't. It has been my pastoral desire to bring to light the glories and the wonders of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to, and to lay before you, not from my own whims and not from my own, uh, from my own bias, but uh, having mined the scripture, having mined and, 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 and exegeted and, and brought out what God has put in his word and nothing more. It's been my desire to put God's perspective about your salvation and about what it means to be saved and what God says about the church and what he thinks about the church before you so that you and I might more highly think of what God has done, of what the Father has done in and through Jesus Christ, not only in you, not only in your family, not only in your neighbors, but in every believer, what God has done in and through the church particularly as he has saved us as individuals, as he has brought all sorts of different people groups and cultural with different cultural backgrounds and coming from different uh, coming with different language and languages and different backgrounds and um, bringing us together and reconciling us in Christ and and making us his body and seeing all these, sometimes very different pieces that from from the outset from from the outside you wouldn't think they would come together you wouldn't think that they would fit so perfectly together you wouldn't think that they would cooperate you certainly wouldn't think that they would actually complement each other in in the service and the contributions that they make but we see that happening in the body of Christ all sorts of different pieces coming together in fellowship and worshiping t- together, worshiping the same God together, worshiping in the same heart of gratitude by means of the same spirit together, loving one another, edifying one another, and as I said, complementing and completing each other. Th- this, this is all wound up and bound up in the mind of Paul as he, is ex- as he has been explaining uh, what God sees when he thinks about the gospel and the church of Jesus Christ. Now, there are several things that Paul has been telling us, uh, particularly about the gospel and about the mystery and about himself. In verse 8, we come to the attitude, and I titled it The Attitude of the Gospel, and it's, it's not, I don't mean to say that the gospel itself has a personality 
and that it has an attitude, but it's, it's really the attitude of the preacher of the gospel and what needs to be the attitude of those who receive and stand in the gospel. And then we will see the audience of the gospel uh, picking up in, in the middle of verse 8, going through the end of verse 10. The attitude of the gospel and then the audience of the gospel. Paul says in verse 8, To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Let's look first and consider the attitude of the gospel's preacher, which is also the attitude that we as, as the recipients of the gospel and as those who stand in the gospel and glory in the gospel, this is the attitude that we're to have. As I said, Paul's been explaining his ministry to Gentiles as an apostle. And certainly all the apostles were entrusted with the gospel, and, and in a sense they were all told to go out and preach it, Matthew 28, 20. They were all told to go out. But in a very literal sense, Paul was told to go way out, to go outside the boundaries of Israel and to go to Gentiles, we saw that in Acts chapter 9. The Lord told him he would go before Gentiles and nations and kings, as well as the sons of Israel, and he would preach and bear witness to the name of Jesus. And he has described, Paul has described his core message as well as his calling, and particularly as he was discussing his calling, uh, as we got to verse 8, we, we began to get a glimpse of Paul's self-reflections and and he's already given us some nuggets of how he views himself, but he, he, he began in verse 8 to, to show us how he views himself in a very lowly manner. He, he views himself very humbly. And, and as I said, he's already left us some nuggets for, for this, for this self-assessment. And if you look up in 3.1, he, he, he isn't the pioneer of Jesus Christ. He's not the president of the of the Jesus Coalition movement. He is the prisoner. He is <coughs> the prisoner of Jesus Christ. And the fact that Paul's ministry to Gentiles and that it had become such a, a big deal, that it had become such a big deal in Jewish and Christian circles wasn't because <coughs> Paul thought, you know, it would be really swell to change things up and to go to Instead of maligning the Gentiles, let's try ministering to them. Instead of persecuting the church, let's promote the church. This wasn't, his, this, this wasn't an idea that originated in the mind of Paul. It wasn't in his, his, uh, his will or his initiative. Paul was where he was, and he was doing what he was doing because of the directing and the ordaining will of Christ. Paul was where he was because the Lord willed him and commanded him 
to be there. In verse 2, Paul tells us that the stewardship, and again, this is re-emphasizing, reaffirming that this wasn't Paul's gospel. This wasn't his mystery. He didn't design it. It was given to him. He says in verse 2 that the stewardship of God's grace was, was given to him with the effect that down in verse 7 that, the, that he, at being the maligner, he was made now a minister. He was made a minister of this, of this gift of grace. And this wasn't because God looked at Paul and said, you know what, here's a guy with potential. He, know, he knows how to engage. He's, he's savvy. He knows the law of Moses like the back of his hand. He knows how to argue. I could use a fellow like him. God didn't look at Paul like that. Paul says it wasn't according to anything in him. It was according to the gift of God's grace. That apostleship, that, that this divine appointment that this commission that this privilege had become Paul's we saw in verse 7 that with this grace came God's power to back up that grace it's no wonder then as we roll into verse 8 that we see Paul magnify, he, he, he makes very large this grace that was given to him, and he does that by placing it upon the backdrop of his own in, inherent, utter unworthiness to receive it. If, if the sense of entitlement, if thinking or having the, the supposition that you, that you deserve something undermines grace, highlighting the fact that you could never deserve it and there was never anything in you to warrant it only magnifies, it draws out the graciousness of said grace. And that's what Paul's doing. Now, he does this by, by describing himself. Who does he say this grace was given to? Verse 8. To the great Apostle Paul, my very poor attempt of a thespian voice, I'm appalled. The great Apostle Paul, the great speaker, the great Gentile engager, no. To me, the very least of all the saints, of all saints, of all saints. Now, if you've followed Christian media for some time, if, you, if you're on Twitter, if you're on Facebook, um, or you've, you've, you've followed an, uh, popular evangel evangelicalism for some time, you, you, you might know, it, it might not surprise you at how uncommon this, this humble attitude in Paul is. It, it is shockingly and disappointingly rarer than you would think. I had half a mind to, to call Jack up this week and just ask him, just out of, out of morbid curiosity, how many pastors who, who he has engaged with over the years could he feel, did he feel had a pride problem? Humility, humility just in general is rarer than you'd like. Within Christian leadership, it is disappointingly rare. 
One person has described pop evangelicalism and Christian media as, quote, living in a culture of Christian rock stars. It is filled with men who love prominence. It is filled with men who love to be out front, with men who loved to be noticed, who love to be liked. They like, they, they revel, they glory in the popularity and in the power and the prestige that ministry, that being out in front of ministry can give them. Paul doesn't do that. Paul does not do that one lick. I want you to see how lowly Paul goes to avoid that and how, how, he, uh, how lowly he regards himself and the extent he goes to avoid that and how uh, I want you to see how his unique privilege, his very unique position of being an apostle did not lead this man to boast or to brag or to press his advantage on people, which he could have as an apostle. He did things that other people could not do. Second Corinthians twelve twelve. He he did the signs of a true apostle. But he never pressed he never used them to press an advantage on people. Here he calls himself the very least of all the saints. And here's where I got my word for the title. Uh, what, what, what Paul does in the Greek is he adds a, super, a superlative. And, and these are, uh, in, in English, these are prefixes and suffixes, or uh, actually I think just suffixes, uh, like, like E-R or E-S-T. You know, this is big, but this is bigger. And then that's biggest. That's a superlative. And Paul takes the, the, the most diminutive, the, mo- the, 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 the smallest, the most condescending diminutive that he can. He tacks it on to the word least. And really, if, if you're going to translate it as directly as possible, it would be, I am the leastest. You know, your, your, your NASB uh, or your English tries to compensate that since leastest is not a word and puts very and that, that, that's a good attempt he is the very least of all saints i'm the very least of all saints why does paul say this because he wants to highlight he wants to magnify he wants to make very large he does not want you to Think less than you ought to think of God's grace. Particularly the grace in his life and in and his apostolic ministry. And, and to do that, he needs to make it very clear that his apostleship was, was a matter of grace. It wasn't because of how amazing he was. It wasn't because of of all the good that he had done in his time and as apostle, and it wasn't because of all the potential and likely good that he would continue to do in the time that he walked on God's green earth. Frankly, Paul is utterly amazed and speechless that he has the privilege and the joy of serving Christ and of serving the people of Christ in his capacity when you when he... he remembers when he bring when, when he brings to his recollection the evil and the damage that he had done previously and it's, it's, it's as if he's saying this picture the lowest christian 
the least worthy, the, the, the most unworthy Christian imaginable, the most unimpressive, least desirable, virtually worthless Christian you could imagine, and I'm actually less than he. I am absolutely, irrevocably, undeniably at the bottom of the barrel when it comes to Christians. And if you're looking for a role model, quite frankly, I don't know why you're looking at me, because you shouldn't be. How, how How unlike normal men this is. I mean, who hasn't heard, you know, I don't mean to brag. But and then they 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 go on and brag that you know th- this isn't Paul is not feigning th- this isn't he's not feigning humility he's not he's not, this isn't a false sense of humility by you know people can say the right kind of words uh, but then they go on and just co- uh, 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 contradict what they said they aren't going to do uh, you know and then draw uh, draw attention to their strengths and their victories. This this was on this was sincerely and genuinely how Paul thought about himself and I say that because this was his repeated self-assessment. This isn't something that he just says here just to just to uh, score a few humility points. This was his this low impression of himself. This reminder of who he used to be was his constant self-assessment. 1 Corinthians 15:5 He's, he's chronicling the appearances of Christ. He said, and, and that he, being Christ, appeared to Cephas, who is Peter, then to the twelve. So he, he's putting Peter out in front in the prominent place. Then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at once. Possibly the, um, uh, the place in Galilee at the, at the place of the ascension, but we don't know for sure most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, this is a really interesting word, as to one untimely born. And the word, um, it, 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 it has been used to speak of a miscarriage. Um, it... I, I don't. I don't want to say everything that it was used to, but it wasn't pleasant. And and the idea is, is this was uh, it was used to describe unnatural births, undesirable births with undesirable outcomes, uh, not the preferred way of bringing somebody into the world. Paul says that's how I came into apostleship, as one untimely born. He appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle. Why, Paul? Why are you so down on yourself? Because I persecuted the church of God. Paul remembers who he was. Paul remembers what he was and what he did pre-conversion and for your own notes, you can look at Acts 7.58 through the, the first couple verses, I think up to verse 4 of chapter 8. You see uh, Paul's introduction, Stephen is stoned, and uh, 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 
that those who are stoning Stephen lay their cloaks at the hand of Saul, and then chapter 8 goes to say that, he, that Saul was heartily approving of Stephen's death. And, and that just really sparked something in him, and he goes on and he ravages the church. He breathes, he breathes threats against the church, committing men and women to prison. And, and, and at, you know, giving him the benefit of the doubt, at best, many Christians were just inconvenienced as they weren't able to work and they were now imprisoned. At worst, there were many husbands and wives and perhaps young adults who were hurt and scared as they are now torn from their family, placed in prison, unable to work, unable to receive food. They're hungry, they're thirsty, they're cold, they're scared. And so I, I don't think it's too much to think that some died because of Paul. He breathed threats against the church. He ravaged the church. He committed men and women to prison. That's what's in his mind when he says he persecuted the church of God. That's in his mind when he calls himself an untimely born uh, um, apostle, a, a freak accident apostle, because you wouldn't think that the Lord would raise up and appoint a man to be his ambassador when he's going around doing stuff like that. He's not promoting the church. He's persecuting the church. This is not a man who is a mold for apostleship. Quite frankly, I, I, I think, you know, we don't believe in, <coughs> in luck, but I'll just say this because I think it will convey what I, what I want to get across. Paul's saying, I'm darn lucky that I have made it in and I am counted to be one of them because I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be here. I am. I am. Un, I was untimely born. I was. I w My my being brought in was not normal, nor desired, nor usual. He wasn't like the others. He didn't start out with them. He didn't sign up to join them. On the contrary, he was opposed to them, and he he dedicated himself towards their destruction. And he did whatever was in his power to afflict and malign and hurt those, them and those who followed them. Again, this was not a man you would ever, ever, ever expect to become an ambassador of Jesus Christ. And as he, it's as if he's saying now, by God's grace, I now stand among them. And, and, and while standing among them, understand that even though, in a sense, I'm standing with them, I am not standing with them because I am beneath them. I am not at their level. And it, it doesn't seem right. I am not fit. It doesn't seem right to call me an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul goes on to tell uh, his son in the faith, Timothy, in 1 Timothy 1.12 and following, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who strengthened me because he considered me faithful. And, and that word considered, it's not consider like to observe and come to a conclusion by empirical observation. It it's, it's, has the idea of to reckon, to regard. 
He regarded me as faithful. He reckoned me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, and here it is, and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. I think one, transla- one translation says, I was an insolent aggressor. Yet, despite what I was, I was shown mercy. And because I acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord was more, I love this, more than abundant. The grace of our Lord is always more than abundant. With the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus, it is a trustworthy statement. And whenever Paul says that, you know, if, if they had, um, if they had uh, uh, bumper stickers back then, whatever follows it's a trustworthy statement would be something that you would see on Paul's bumper sticker. Or it would be, you know, Paul's kids would have made this uh, uh, verse out of magnets on the fridge. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. In other words, write this down. Jesus Christ came in the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Again, this this wasn't a one-time thing he said about himself and then moved on and then spoke about himself in a manner that contradicted this. This was his, this was his repeated self-assessment. Don, Pastor Don Green, a man who is far wiser than I am, puts it well when he says this. This is a picture of a soul that has been broken before the grace of God. This is a picture of someone whose pride has been shattered who carried forward now into his Christian life and into his Christian ministry not a sense of entitlement, but a sense of disentitlement. What do people say about you? What do people say about me? There was nothing about Paul's prior life that warranted God's favor. There was nothing about Paul where he felt he could appeal to God to grade him on a curve or that he could expect God's kindness, let alone the privilege and the joy of, of speaking for Christ and, and serving the people of Christ. Everything prior to his apostleship was a living and breathing contradiction. And it's, it's as if he's saying, by, by human measure, by, by human consideration of everything I used to be, I shouldn't be here. I should not be an apostle. And all the blessings and privileges and joys that I have as an apostle, beloved, I deserve none of it. Disentitlement. And what I do deserve for the things I did, I have been spared from. And if you know the gospel, you know why Paul says that. What I have, I don't deserve. What I deserve, I've been spared from. Now, you and I aren't called to be apostles, but Paul's attitude is key to measuring the depth of our own spiritual maturity. And I would go so far as to deposit before you 
and to say that the presence or the complete absence of this attitude is an effective indicator of whether or not someone is saved and regenerate to begin with. The Christian is someone who has come to the end of himself. He has been broken over his sins. And the Christian goes forth not with a spirit of entitlement, not with the slogan, not with the, fr- not with the words, I deserve this, I deserve that, draped around his or her heart. But rather that what you do deserve, as I said, has been given to another. It has been given to a substitute. And what you have been given, what has been placed graciously into your hand is more than what you deserve. What you have been given is yours by grace. And no matter what you have been given, you receive it with gratitude. I think if you go out into the world and talk like this, you will be perceived as a whack job. But the Christian, the heart of the Christian, know what they have, they recognize they have been, they have received it by grace. And no matter what they've been given, they receive it with gratitude. Genuinely converted sinners saved by grace and, ha- and who have been given a new heart they can receive absolutely nothing and receive it with joy. While the unconverted heart, who is still, who has not yet died to self and is still a factory of idols, as Luther, was it Luther or Calvin? Calvin, that's why I have him here. Calvin said that the, that the unregenerate heart, actually I think he just said the heart in general, is a factory of idols. That heart can languish in plenty and continue to be ungrateful. Why? Because there's always more that could be had. There's always more that I can get. The heart of the Christian can be given virtually nothing and receive it with gratitude. The unregenerate heart can be given everything and there's still more. Wasn't it Rockefeller that was asked, you know, how much more are you going to get? Just a little more, just a little more, just, and that's what he said the rest of his life. In this picture of Paul disowning his former self and really separating himself not only from his former manner of life, but from his former priorities, his former values, his former passions, his former sin. Beloved, we need to be, we need to be seeing ourselves doing the same. We need to be setting ourselves up to do the same. We need to say, I used to be that way. I used to be someone, but I hate, I hate that man. I hate that woman that I used to be. I hate that man and I don't want anything ever to do with him again. I deny that man and when he pops up his head, I, I silence him and I send him away. I'll have nothing to do with him. He's dead to me. Isn't that, you tell me, isn't that what Jesus said were the conditions one must, one must meet if anyone would 
come after him and be his disciple? Was that what Jesus said or wasn't it? If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. Not deny his neighbor. Deny himself. And to take up one's cross, that, that's to reckon oneself dead to rights. A dead man hanging on a cross isn't, isn't uh, complaining about, oh, I don't have this, I don't have that. And Wait, but there's something else going on in Paul, in Paul's conversion that he wants us to know. It's not, I mean, it's great for Paul. It, it, is, it is fantastic for Paul. It is good news for Paul that he, being the chief of sinners, was saved. That's wonderful. But Paul has more, more about his conversion that he, that, and him being saved that he wants us to grasp. And it's that it is great for everyone else to know that Paul, being the chief of sinners, was saved. Uh, he continues in 1 Timothy 1.16, Yet for this reason... And I love purpose clauses because they, it, it, it's the Bible being very, very clear. This is why something happened. This is why you need to know and understand all that stuff I just said. This is what it, where it was all going. For this reason, and this explains why Christ saved Paul, the chief of sinners. For this reason, I found mercy. Here's another purpose clause. Oh, I love, I love Paul. So that, and this is why, so that in me as the foremost, in other words, as the worst of the worst, as the absolute bottom of the barrel, as the guy <laughs> who needs the most forgiving, who would soak up all the forgiveness if he were a sinful sponge, as, so that <laughs> in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his, I love this, his perfect patience. Why was the chief of sinners saved? So that the perfect patience, that, as opposed to the imperfect patience. Uh, I mean, I have an imperfect patience. I don't care what Jennifer tells you. There are times where I'm... I, 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 I fall below the standard. There are times where, and, and really this, uh, this word for patience, it, it has the idea of, of long-suffering, um, forbearance. One, one lexicon uh, defined it as sl uh, a slowness to avenge wrongs. Not because you're lazy, but because you are patient, because you are forbearing. It's good to... We appreciate when, when people are forbearing towards us, don't we? Okay, so there are times where my forbearance, where my patience begins to crack. There are times where, where my patience fails. And there are times where, where I'm sure for everyone here, where someone's patience has failed you where someone's forbearance proved inadequate, insufficient, impotent, faulty, flawed, or in other words, imperfect. Jesus Christ does not have patience like that. 
And the reason he saved the most dastardly of men, the chief of sinners, the foremost unworthy scum of them all, is so that you would know, so that you might see how perfect his patience was. If I showed up in a blinding light to Saul of Tarsus, I would have squashed him like a bug because that's what my flesh would have wanted to have done. But that's because my patience is not perfect. His patience is. Paul continues. So that in me at the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now let me, as one pastor trying to imitate and trying to echo another pastor, a greater pastor, let me, let me try to channel uh, Apostle Paul's pastoral appeal to you. Friend or whoever is out there on YouTube, Facebook land, digital world, if you are presently under the weight of sin and guilt, if, if Paul's past as a blasphemer and a violent man and a persecutor, a man full of, of hate and anger and self-zeal, if, if that describes where you are now and if that's the case, then what, listen to what Paul is saying about himself because what he is saying about himself is a great hope for you. Because Paul is, this is Paul's point. If a man like Paul could be saved, if a man like Paul could be saved, that is evidence of how, mark this, how great and how mighty and how effective and efficient and how deep and awesome and wonderful and uh, perfect the saving power of God towards sinners is, particularly when they're sinners who are in such desperate need of being saved. And if, if, that, if, if the fact that an insolent, blaspheming murderer like Paul could be saved, then that is proof that God will save you too. So turn to him. Turn to him. Today is the day of salvation. If, if you need to hear that, and if, beloved, if you need to apply that, if you need to respond to that, he, the book of Hebrews said, makes the appeal, today is the day of salvation. Do not harden your heart. Don't put it off. Don't, in, don't entertain your sin and think, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll come to Christ later. I'll make things right later. Beloved, do it now. Do it now. Whatever your sin is, no matter how black your heart is, no matter how weighty your soul is as it's laden with guilt and shame, the truth of the matter is, beloved, that you, no matter who you are, no matter what your sin is, you are not the chief of sinners. You aren't the at the absolute bottom of the barrel. You're not the foremost sinner of all time, because Paul has already anticipated someone saying that, and he interjects and says, no, I'm that man. 
you don't have the right to call yourself the worst. I'm the worst. That's me. And he had the evidence to back it up. And being the worst of the worst, being the chief of sinners and the foremost sinner of all, Jesus Christ was gracious and effective to to save me. And the fact that he did save me is an example of how sufficient and powerful and mighty he is to save. And if he can save me, friend, if he can save me, again, I'm trying to channel Paul, but I, I echo Paul's sentiment. If he could save Paul and I, he can save the likes of you. His patience is perfect. His power to save is mighty. So we see then in Paul, the great ambassador of the gospel, that he wasn't merely its foremost speaker and preacher and champion. He was also its greatest example of its power to save. Let's consider next the audience of the gospel. The audience of the gospel. And, uh, you know, our visitors are noticing the fact that I've worked halfway through one verse. And I have two and a half to go. And they're looking at their clocks and they go, I've seen, I know how he delivers mail. I know he can do it. <laughs> to me, the very least of the saints, this was, I, I'm, I, no. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Oh, what a potent rabbit trail that is. And it's, it is a potent rabbit trail that could and should and probably will be its own message at a later time. But let me say here and now that the study of Christ is indeed a rich study. There is so much to learn about the Lord Jesus Christ, much to learn, much to appreciate about him and his person, both his his, his divine person who has eternally existed as well as his human person that who, who was fully uh, uh, um, uh, uh, who could fully sympathize with all of our very human weaknesses and limitations and there's so much that we could learn about him and and, and so much that we need to to so much uh, uh, knowledge about him that we need to make our own you know it's not enough that you just memorize certain verses and and, uh, you know, perhaps if you remember from your Awana years or it's not just enough to have a verse on a bracelet or a fridge, but the Bible says we need to have his words written upon our hearts. And he says in Matthew seven, blessed are they who build their life upon the rock of my words. Are you building your life upon what you know about Jesus Christ? There's so much to learn about him and how perfect and wonderful and good and wise he is. And as we learn more about him, we, we, we find more and more reasons to trust him to a higher degree, to worship him in greater depths, to love him more fervently. And I promise you this, I promise you this, when we are with him in our 10,000th, ten, for a millionth year, We will have been with him for a very long time. We will have seen him face to face. I promise you this, we will still be in the shallow end of an immeasurably deep pool. Paul says that the riches of Christ are unsearchable. 
which means that you will not and that you because you cannot exhaust all there is to know about him. Christ is infinite and you can't just you can't just learn a few things about him and then check off the box as you would and then progress to the next level as you would from moving from like algebra 3 to algebra 4 from geometry to to trigonometry. Christ is infinite and like a radiant diamond, beloved, you can stare at him. And every time you look at him, you you see a new ray of brilliance. And you see a new stunning beauty that you didn't see before. And after a million years, you will feel, mark this, you will feel like you just began. Christ is infinite and his riches are unfathomable. But as I said, that's a, that's a message. Well, let's see. If I, uh, every sermon needs an application. Application, love Christ, be, ap- be captivated with Christ. There, that's the, that's the application. Mini sermon, done. Okay, move on. <laughs> and that's, that, that, that can be a message for another time. Suffice to say, Paul had the privilege. Paul had the privilege and the blessing and the joy of being able to preach Christ, this Christ, this Christ to Gentiles who, who uh, not the Gentiles, but Christ who had unfathomable, unsearchable, inexhaustible, endless riches. He gets to preach that Christ to Gentiles. And, and then he continues, and to bring to light, and uh, if Justin were here, he would be telling Emily, Emily, our ESV does, uh, has a variant. It says for everyone, and I would say yes. Uh, if you have an ESV or perhaps an NIV, your translation may say for everyone. The, the NASB uh, uses a manuscript that doesn't have that variant, doesn't really change anything. So he gets to preach to Christ, and he gets to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery. And this is... This is not merely the planning, but it's the, it's the planning and the execution. It's the fact that this, that this plan of God to, preach, uh, to bring Christ to Jew and Gentile has been in his mind for, for eternity past, but now it's been revealed and now it's been put into action. He gets to bring that to light, that administration of the mystery, which for ages had been hidden in God who created all things. Now Paul's talking about how he, he gets to he, uh, he, he gets to bring to light the gospel. My question is is to who? Who is the audience? Who to whom is Paul bringing the light of the gospel or the, the light of the uh, uh, administration of the mystery? Who who is witnessing? Who is watching this? Gentiles? Thumbs up, thumbs down? Aiden says thumbs up. Yes. Paul, Paul says in verse 1 that he, um, I, I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. At the end of verse 2, God's grace was given to me for you. Verse 8. 
uh, he says that, that the, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. But what about, what about that variant that Justin has? For everyone. Which is it? Is it Gentiles or is it for everyone? I mean, uh, verse 5, the mystery was not known to the sons of men, but now it has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. You would assume if you're going to complete the thoughts, only logical if it was concealed to the sons of men, it's now revealed to the sons of men. So that could be that could be for everyone. You know, that, that supports the variant reading. But this is great. This is great. It's more than that. It's more than that. Look what Paul says in verse 10. Why was this grace given to Paul to preach to Gentiles? Why was he appointed to bring to light the administration of God's grace and mercy in Christ to Jew and Gentile alike. Here we have another purpose clause. I love purpose clauses. Take away Santa Claus, bring in purpose clause. And the groaning was great. Verse 10, so that the manifold wisdom of God, a manifold means something that's many-sided, something that is diverse it has many features it's not it's not simple it's it's there's depth to it there's intricacy to it that the man and, and beloved that's why i'm saying we will we will study god for a long time and you will never get to the bottom of how unfathomable he is the manifold okay why why is he why did he preach so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known throughout the church, we know that, to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. It's more profound than you thought. Who is the ultimate audience to the advance of the gospel? Who is watching Christ, uh, you know, Matthew 16, 18? Who is watching Christ build his church? Who? Is it, is it Agrippa or Felix or, or Festus or, or even Caesar? Aren't, aren't those authorities and rulers? Well, they were in the Gentile world. They were rulers and authorities on earth. But what does Paul say? Rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. These are the angels. No, Charlie, I'm not talking about the Los Angeles angels. L.A. angels. Okay, I had to throw a sports thing in there. This is the angelic realm. This is the angelic realm. This is this is this is amazing. This is the angels are watching the spread in advance of the gospel. Angels and demons are watching Christ build his church. I, 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 I mentioned demons because I basically think of, this made me think of Job. Really, the point, uh, 
the point that God made ultimately in the book of Job was not a point to Job. It was a point to Satan. You get that from chapter one. Who? Okay, but uh, that rabbit trail. Angels are watching Christ build his church. They are, they are, according to verse 10, watching God's plan and, and watching the administration of, of the mystery as it's unfolded and as it's brought to light. And Paul see, here says that as they watch, as, as those heavenly celestial beings watch as they see the gospel advance, it testifies even to them. Think about it. To, to those who see the unmitigated, unrestrained, unfiltered holiness of God, to them it further testifies to the wisdom and power and sovereign might of God. Do you know what they witness on a daily basis? The most extreme of celestial phenomena to them is like for us, just a subtle change in the temperature. They see the formations of supernovas and white, white dwarfs and all sorts of amazing things. And when they see sinners saved, when they see God, when they see Jesus Christ glorified in his church and through the preaching of the gospel, that gives them fuel with which to worship that they didn't previously had. And they see that that allows them, that enables them to see new sides, new details, new features previously unseen in this manifold wisdom of God. Because, because God saves people like Aaron and people like John and Alyssa and Dan and the McCarthys. You people being saved give angels reason to rejoice. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Your salvation is more profound than you've, than you've previously thought. Luke 15.10 says there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Speaking for the apostles, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.9, we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. Peter says in 1 Peter 1.12 that the salvation which the prophets foretold at the very end, almost as a side note, as, as if, I mean, I would want him to get into this a little bit. He says angels long to look into and the word has the idea of of stooping or bending over because you can't you can't see what you want to see from where you are so you need to modify your sight angels long to look into our salvation they're so intrigued how great is the gospel that angels who have seen what they've seen are, are captivated and entranced and intrigued, thoroughly intrigued by salvation of mortal creatures like us. And the advance of Christ's church. And as that, the truth is, is that as that amazing gospel is preached, whether here from this pulpit or wherever, 
in your workplace, in your homes, amongst your friends and your families and amongst your neighbors, handing out, even, as in, in, even in short and simple uh, 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 events where you pass out a gospel card. You know, pe- you know people get saved by simply reading a car- some of these cards. You don't hear about it enough, but it happens. As the, as the gospel is preached, and we take the opportunity to share it in our own spheres, the audience, beloved, the audience goes beyond the flesh and blood of the person who's hearing your words or reading a card. The audience includes the heavenly realms. Beloved, your salvation and every salvation is more profound and more detailed and more glorious than you previously thought it was. That's why God's wisdom indeed is diverse and many-sided. Let's pray. Lord, what an amazing thing to, to, as we dig deep and deep and deep into your gospel, into its rich truths, into the rich person and character and work of the Lord Jesus Christ for sinners such as us. I thank you, Lord, for the privilege it is to be a minister of the gospel and the joy it is to to declare and bring forth but a small sampling of the unfathomable riches of the Lord Jesus Christ for people who delight to hear him preached. May the Lord Jesus Christ be more grand, more vivid, more wonderful, more beautiful, more lovely, more precious in our sights as we come week in and week out to hear him preach and as we long for his return to take us home.